You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. South Sudan is the world's newest country, and its government, the latest one to be accused by the United Nations of committing war crimes. There's a complete breakdown of ordinary custom traditions this is a worse tragedy this is worse even than syria i think the consequence is that there's been much terror the un report says that in some cases pro-government fighters have been given permission to rape women and girls as a form of payment this place has been torn to shreds welcome to everyday emergency i'm nick owen from doctors without borders also known as msf Today's story is by Michael Sheck, a Scottish nurse from Dumfries. In 2015, on his first mission with MSF, Michael travelled to South Sudan, the world's youngest country after gaining independence from Sudan in 2011, which effectively ended Africa's longest-running civil war. But in December 2013, South Sudan was plunged back into chaos. A fresh civil war erupted, which has killed tens of thousands of people and led more than a million South Sudanese to flee their homes in search of safety. One of the places worst affected by the conflict is the northern town of Bentiu, which was razed to the ground in 2014. Towards the end of last year, Michael spent six months in a camp for displaced people on the outskirts of the town. He reports on how a tough job became even tougher when malaria broke out. The following is a true story written by Michael and read by actor Charlie de Bromhead. When I first arrived at the camp in Bentu, it was chaotic. There were 30,000 people living there who had fled the violence in their hometowns. Over the course of six months, this increased to 120,000 people. We were running the only healthcare facility in the camp and were working around the clock. I was tasked with firefighting, seeing as many people in the emergency room as possible, making clinical decisions, placing IVs, doing transfusions, treating measles and malnutrition. I reckon I was seeing about 300 people a day. And then malaria broke out. Bentu became hell on earth. Suddenly we were treating 4,000 people with malaria every week and I was running from one sick kid to another trying to keep them all alive. There was one day when we had 15 children die and I had to carry their bodies into the morgue. At that point I did ask myself, why am I here? We knew we had to start fighting the disease methodically, person by person. I woke at 5.30am every day and started with a good breakfast. You're out and about from 7am so you need to make sure you're energised. We had 70 teams going door-to-door with backpacks full of anti-malarial drugs, as well as packets of therapeutic food to treat malnutrition. When we found sick children, we assessed them, treated them, and, if necessary, took them to our hospital. It was hard, hard work. We were going from one shelter to the next in the blazing heat, running from block to block. Some of us got sick ourselves with heat exhaustion. But it's what we had to do. Children were dying, and the more we could see, the better. At the end of the first eight days, we realised we'd treated 16,000 children. After that, the number of children with malaria dropped, and when they came to the hospital with malaria, they weren't half as sick as before. Suddenly, it seemed like everyone in Bentu knew me. 
It's not every day that you see an Asian guy from Scotland in the middle of South Sudan. They'd shout my name, Michael, Michael, and Achai the New. Often I saw little kids I treated in the hospital, and here they were, alive and playing. That was a great feeling. I used to put on movie nights for the kids in the children's ward. There was one little girl who was so miserable she tried to bite and spit at us. She wouldn't smile and she wouldn't interact with the other kids. One day I was playing music for them, just some dance music, and she got up and started dancing and dancing. It was really amazing. She was smiling for the first time. After that, her condition started to improve. What's happening in this area of South Sudan is atrocious. We heard stories of government soldiers raiding villages, stealing cattle and raping women. People have suffered so much. It's especially hard to see children suffer. So many were traumatized, frightened and injured. You feel like crying out, they're just kids, they've not done anything to anyone. It matters that we continue to fight to keep people alive. It matters to all those mothers. Amid the suffering, you also see the best, most brilliant side of humanity. I met a woman who arrived at the camp with 20 children. They weren't her own children, but she'd looked after them, kept them safe, found what food she could for them and, and brought them with her to the camp. MSF is the only organization providing 24-7 care in the camp. Those 16,000 children that we treated for malaria, that's 16,000 children who are alive now who might well have died. Our work there is literally keeping people alive. It's expensive work. People don't realize all the different elements that go into a project to make it work. It's very difficult even to get to Bentu. It costs £5,000 alone to charter a small plane to fly in supplies. It costs £1.21 for a vial of anti-malarial medicine to keep a child alive. As MSF, we go to places that no one else goes to. And that costs money. But that's what MSF is all about. Going to difficult places where people need help and helping them. It's what we do. Since writing that letter, Michael has returned to South Sudan with MSF, this time to a town called Lear, where we've been running a hospital for more than 25 years. We got him into the studio shortly after his return. Welcome to the studio, Michael. Thanks very much. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad today. If the weather had just breaking up, it'd be a bit better. Going back to your time in Bentiu, can you tell us a bit more about the camp you were working in? Yes. So, now there's a nice flashy squared box. Uh, if you get any aerial pictures of Bentiu uh, Protection of Civilian Camp. But when I was there, it was a small rectangular box. And when I first arrived, there was a population of 30,000 people. And that population rose to 120,000 people. All of those people were actually in a much smaller area than what they were in now. So it was a very cramped con uh, cramped conditions. Um, a lot of spread of disease related due to those cramped conditions as well. Scabies, which some people might be unlucky enough to have had in the UK. And skin infections as well. I believe the previous year was very bad as well. Before there was any drainage dug, the camp is based in a swamp. I don't know whose bright idea that was, but the camp's based in a swamp. And when the uh, rainy season comes, it rains really badly that you're up to your knees in water. But especially in the swamp and where the people were living, the water line actually could go up to your waist level. 
and a lot of children were actually drowning in the water. The UN eventually dug some drainage systems and that problem was reduced. And in the camp nowadays, there's a better drainage system, although we, there are some spots that children do still drown in, sadly. But they are being addressed as MSF. We advocate and try and cajole other health actors to try and step in also. The conditions in the camp, there's nothing for the people. The people are solely reliant on um, aid from government agencies, non-government agencies um, to survive, essentially. There's no gas or electricity. People have to go outside of the camp because there's no trees or anything to go and collect firewood. And the men invariably don't go because they are targeted as possible soldiers or combatants. So it's left to the women and children to go. So um, women go to out to get firewood and they come across armed groups of men. And sometimes these women are sadly attacked and raped. And as MSF, we abhor this and we do our best to try and treat the women humanely as possible and to get them the help that they need in treatment. God, it must be so hard to see that kind of stuff happening on a daily basis. I mean, how, how did you and the team cope? You speak to you speak to each other about it. I think as well that when I was in Bentiu um, and in Lear, although these horrible things were happening, there was always something else that you had to do. Um, for instance, um, we had one woman that came in the camp that this did occur to her and it was giving her some tender loving care, making sure she was okay, giving her treatment. And we let her, we got her to stay over the night in the hospital just to recuperate. There were also some, some lighter moments in the camp as well, weren't there? Like in the post, you, you talked about being Scottish and how people reacted to that. Yes. So they've maybe not heard a Scottish accent, much less a Scottish accent coming out of, I'm of Chinese descent, so, and I look Chinese, so... It threw a lot of people, even threw a lot of international staff when I started to speak to them. But the people seemed to catch on to my accent, actually a lot quicker than the French people as well. But people, uh, yeah, it was a very unique situation. There was a Mongolian battalion that was in the protection of civilian uh, camp um, as part of the UN peacekeeping force. So they were used to seeing people of uh, kind of more tan skin colour than just white skin colour. But they came to know that I wasn't Mongolia, I was Scottish. So there'd be some Okai the news um, now and again thrown at me because I'd, be, I'd say I'd go more Scottish when I was just playing with the children. Um, so yeah, it was quite a unique moment. <laughs> it's one thing for international volunteers who are working in these places who can be you know, evacuated in high-risk situations. But for many of the national South Sudanese stuff, they're having to permanently live and work in these conditions. What does that mean for them? Uh, I'll talk about Bentu first, actually. The staff, uh, the staff in Bentu are remarkable people. Uh, these are people who have left their, previously left their homes and villages due to fighting. A lot of the staff have seen family members or friends or relatives killed due to their ethnic um, origin um, or what tribe they're affiliated to. And yet these people still come and treat people that may have came from that ethnic group but have nothing to do with the conflict. And there's no animosity, which is what you expect in the community. Um, and these people come in there and um, treat these people. A lot of the staff are open to the same risks that the people in the camp were also open to. A lot of my staff got uh, got malaria and were very sick as well. 
I had one staff member whose child actually died in the hospital as well from malaria as well. And I wanted to try. Most people, they need a long period of time to recover and grieve. But, and I told her to take at least a week off before coming back. And I was thinking in the camp, there's no work, there's no money. So I was worried that she'd be thinking she needs to come back because she needs to earn because she has other children. And I told her you'd be paid leave, don't worry about this, go and grieve. And within three days, she actually came back to work. I told her not to, she needs to go home and grieve, but she just turned around and said to me in New Air, I don't want this to happen to other mothers, I'd rather be here working. And that's how remarkable the people are there. They live, they're open to the same risks, they see the same things, and yet they come in day out to work for MSF. Yeah, that's incredible. So have you have you caught the MSF bug then? Do you think you'll be going out on other missions? Or, you know, what does the future hold? Well, when I was in Lear, I got a little bit sick, so I'm quite small already. I think I started MSF at 61 kilograms and tried to fatten myself up, and when I left Lear, I was 48 kilograms. So... Uh, I need to fatten up a little bit first. Um, it's one of the risks of working in the field, especially working in such a resource-poor environment where hygiene conditions are very poor. In Lear, there was no running water. It was literally a bucket shower. Um, and there's a lot of diarrheal diseases that were going around. So fat, fatten up first would be the main aim. Enjoy uh, life back in the UK and probably uh, going back out into the field um, shortly after. But uh, I don't know where in the world yet. So I've been told about a pretty incredible event that you were involved in with um, with two patients in Lear. Could you run us through what happened? Yeah, so early morning, I'd already left them um, to go into the field to set up my mobile clinic. But I got a frantic call about an hour into the clinic um, from one of the other nurses to come back because we had a elderly man who was critical, who was very, what we call hypovolemic, so lost all of their blood, most of the blood volume from their body. And we had a 10-year-old boy that came in shot. We hear gunfire at night and usually it's related to cattle raiding because that's a source of finance and prestige in the country. So we, whenever you hear gunfire, you kind of ex half expect people to be coming in. Now, the, with the distances involved, a lot of time when, pe uh, when people are shot, they will bleed out and die usually and they won't come to us. So normally people that are shot and do come to the MSF facility, they are normally gunshot wounds to the arms or legs because usually head, neck and abdomen uh, all hit something vital and they'll sadly die. I rushed back in one of the cars to go and see these guys and help the nurse. And the first thing you always do in that setting is you have to establish who's the sickest person, who needs what now and who can wait. And the young boy, it was a very quick assessment because it was a single gunshot entry into the chest. As I said, if it, usually if it's a chest, uh, kind of your body injury, they will die. So this boy is still alive. He had a slight collapsed lung and the bullet only went into the right side of his chest, but not out. So the bullet was still in there. But he was breathing, talking and comfortable. So I knew I could leave him and focus on his uncle, who was very sick. He had multiple gunshot wounds to both of his arms and to his left leg from memory. 
His right arm was a mess. There was a lot of gunshot wounds that had blown open um, a lot of parts of his arms. His arm was broken in three or four places in the right arm. And um, he had one bullet that went into his elbow, elbow in the left arm. And he had one bullet in his left shin as well. Essentially, the bullets, they cause a big cavity and it basically exploded the tissue um, round about it. And he was basically exsanguinating, bleeding to death. Now, in those situations, back here, back home in London, every trauma centre, every place, every hospital has facilities to be able to give people blood transfusion. We give you, if we don't know your blood group, we can just give you um, O negative blood, which is like the universal donor. In Lear, we didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So obviously, I already knew this man's lost a lot of blood already. He needs a blood transfusion. But... He, ha he didn't have that much blood in his system right now to keep his um, brain perfused enough with oxygen. So he was half passed out and was dying essentially. And you, what you usually need to do, and it's a skill that every nurse and doctor knows, is we put what's called a cannula. It's a metal needle with a plastic tube over it that you insert into the vein. You might hear them called IVs and like casualty and Grey's Anatomy. Um, and you put an IV in and you put sterile fluid into into the body, which basically increases the volume and gives the heart enough um, volume to contract and push blood or what remains of the blood in his body to his brain. The problem was that he'd lost so much blood that the veins inside the arms, and you can see the veins in your arm, he'd, he was, he'd lost that much that his own body had squeezed all of those um, veins so that it shunt all of the blood into the main part of his body to conserve what bl what blood remained. So we couldn't get any IV into him, and he was slowly dying. So what I had to do as a measure of last resort is we put in what's called an intraosseous um, needle, which is basically this metal nail um, that you screw, like a corkscrew into a wine bottle, into the shin, through the skin, and straight into the shin bone and the only the only one that I had was a paediatric sized one so it was very small and it wasn't very um, big putting it into a adult male patient and when you're an adult your bones are a lot harder now so the needle obviously isn't designed for that but it was the only option and the only thing I had available to try and save this guy's life so it usually in back home in the UK you have what's called an easy gun so it's basically a drill, like a Black & Decker drill that you can literally drill it into the shin bone in less than 10 seconds flat. And obviously I didn't have that there. And it took me half an hour to drill this into this guy's shin. Um, in between, me and the other nurse were taking turns to do it because your hand just gets so numb and so pain, pain from putting pressure on and slowly drilling it, but not to bend the needle. While we both made attempts to try and cannulate this guy still, like an emergency thing that is very, very drastic would be is your jugular vein that you can see in your neck. Sometimes if it's very drastic, we'd stick a cannula in there, but I couldn't even see that to try and attempt that. So we put a bolt into this guy's shin and eventually got access after half an hour. I managed to be able to pour fluid in and literally after the first uh, litre of fluid that we got into this man, he regained consciousness, which was obviously quite good and good sign to have and 
I think within five or ten minutes, um, we were ma- we then were able to get um, our intravenous access into him and give him antibiotics to help prevent infection. The main problem was, is given the severity and gravity of all of those wounds, his arm would have 100% of cotton infection and he would have 100% would have died and lost or lost the arm. So obviously in Lior, we don't have any medical facilities, no surgical facilities. All we're running are what we call bush clinics. So what we have is what all we can really use. And we, this was us leaching our absolute limit in terms of medical care because the previous Lear facility was looted a couple of months back. So we needed to evacuate this guy. Luckily, we had a plane arriving that day to drop off some supplies to us. So we managed to hold the plane and get this uh, man and the child onto the plane to evacuate him. Now, his arms were a floppy mess was the only thing. If you tried to lift him up, his arm would just disintegrate. So what what you'd normally do is you'd put them into a plaster of Paris, like a cast, essentially, for his arm. But we didn't even have any of that. So we just got some, I got some bamboo cane, strapped it together and then just wrapped it over his arms and then wrapped it tight over his um, arm to just help try and reduce the bleeding so he didn't bleed further as well. And we got him onto the plane with the young boy. Now, reassessing things as I was going onto the plane, it suddenly came to me, this young boy, he's got some air in his chest um, from being shot. It wasn't getting any worse. It wasn't getting any better was the only problem. And he was breathing a little bit fast. So I knew his lung was going to deflate. And I have no facilities in Lear to be able to reinflate his lung long term. But AR, when you take it up in a plane, expands. Um, I did. I got an A in physics. <laughs> and I spoke to the doctor who was in project. I was like, I was like, do, we, do I really need to take him with me? He's like, yeah, he'll probably die here if we leave him here. And this is our best opportunity to, to get, get him out and receive the medical care he needs. So I was like, okay, worst case scenario, what's going to happen? And we're talking for it. It's like, yes, it's very likely that his lung's going to c- c- uh, collapse over his heart, stop the, uh, his heart from beating, and he'll go in cardiac arrest and die. <laughs> Unless... I put a metal needle with a, oh, it's a cannula, the same thing that we put into the plastic tube into the vein. I put, unless you put a needle into the second intercostal space, mid-clavicular line for all those medics listening out there, and you insert that straight in and you pull the needle out. And lo and behold, and it's the most relieving sound you'll ever hear, when you pull it out, you'll hear this hissing noise and that's all the excess air escaping out of his chest and the lung expanding. And that's what happened when I was on the plane. <laughs> um, I was treating his uncle, actually, at the time. Um, he was bleeding a little bit more, so I was just trying to tie the bandages a bit um, better. And he just starts gasping for breath, tugging. And there's a sign where basically his um, trachea, so it's uh, your kind of Adam's apple, uh, basically deviates to one side. And I was like, ah, oh, here we go. And... The thing was is you'd maybe try and preempt this from happening and back home you'd have a chest x-ray, you'd even have an ultrasound, but the most basic thing you can always do is you can listen with a stethoscope and be able to hear that there's not any air going to the lungs. But I was over 10,000 feet up in the air in a plane with the plane making so much noise that I couldn't even hear anything through the stethoscope. 
So he got to that stage. I decompressed his chest, heard a big hiss and made a large expletive noise. And the pilots turned around and shouted, is everything okay back there? I was like, it is now. After that, the kid was okay. I was praying that I didn't have to do another one because it was a potential thing that could happen. But the kid was okay and we managed to get him off the plane and his uncle and they're both very well now. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcasts and leave us a comment. We've also posted pictures of Michael and Ben to you, as well as links to other articles and videos about MSF's work in South Sudan. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency, we talk with Sandra Smiley, a field comms officer who was working in Democratic Republic of Congo when she met a young girl called Clementine brought into an MSF clinic fighting for her life. Be sure to tune in. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.